Happy Father's Day, everybody. We're in the middle of our epic series on Viking Berserkers, but today we're taking a little break. This is a bonus episode where I want to do something special. I want to talk about the saga not of raging warriors or longship captains, but of my family. We're Swedish on my father's side, or part Swedish anyway, so we're kind of like Vikings, I guess. And my family story is kind of like a saga with adventure, passion, tragedy, murder, loss, and triumph. But that's not really what this is about. I just want to tell the stories of my family. In any way, seeing as it's Father's Day here in the U.S., I thought it fitting. Perhaps everyone out there can feel a little bit akin to this story, even if it just makes you think about your own father and family, and what it means to try to live up to the expectations of those that have gone before you. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. The closest thing I've ever seen to a tear in my dad's eye was when he took me aside one day and told me that I had to make my mark. He meant make my mark on the world, to do something that somehow changes things, that leaves an indelible impression, some evidence that you were here, that your life was not a waste, that you truly lived. And that's something no doubt anyone with a father can relate to, because in our culture it's often the father's role to crack the whip, to goad you on, to be a little bit of a hard-ass for your own good. Quit playing video games all day, go out and get a job, aim high, make your mark. And when my father told me that, we were having a drink in the bar, which is extremely rare for us. In fact, it's the only time I can ever remember us intending to drink together. But he invited me to do so because he had had a similar experience with his father on some fishing trip, I think it was, where they got into a bottle of Jack Daniels, and his father's stern and implacable countenance, well, it cracked just a little. And he was able to open up emotionally in a way that he could not otherwise do. And whether the tradition stretched back even further than that to my grandfather's father, I don't know, I can't say. But suffice to say, that it had the character of a ritual when my dad sat me down and he had me drink, and then he tried his best to let his countenance crack just a little bit too. This is going to be a more introspective episode. No co-host today, it's just me and you and your father. And this is going to be a little bit like our Titoism series, where I got to talk about my mother's side, which belongs to the Slovenian diaspora, because we're Slovenian. And in that series, I explored my awkward, pimply feelings about my ethnicity as a Slovenian-American. But this episode is not going to be about ethnicity. As on my dad's side, we're, we've always just been more American than anything else. I mean, my grandma likes to joke that half of us came over on the Mayflower and the other half were waiting there to greet them. <laughs> so this won't be like that. And it won't be a long series like that either. It's just going to be this single episode. But it will have that more inward-looking character to it which is kind of a twist for my dad's side of the family, actually, because they've always been the more outward-looking type of people, you know, action-oriented. Unlike me, the thoughtful one, they're more like Viking explorers, frankly. I mean, they're, they're like adventurers at heart, each in a different way, I guess. Many of them touched deeply, or you could even say scarred, perhaps, by loss of various kinds. And I want to tell their stories today. And Somewhere along the line, maybe we'll find out what it means to some way, somehow, make your mark on the world. Our story today begins May 24th, 1905, in a house in St. James, Minnesota, which is a small rural community, and it always has been, 
And all of our stories today will be about small town life. I mean, so picture corn stalks and bean fields and prairie grasses, that kind of thing. Anyway, I have a newspaper clipping from 1905 that I want to read from. The article is entitled, Young Wife Meets Death. Mrs. D. Floyd Hall, fatally burned by kerosene explosion, lingers for about 12 hours in awful agony. The article goes on to explain, The accident occurred about half past four o'clock in the afternoon and was caused by the explosion of kerosene which Mrs. Hall was using in kindling a fire. Her clothing took fire, and in her fright she ran out of doors where the air fanned the flames still more. The neighbors did not hear her screams at once, and by the time assistance reached her, the cruel fire had done its deadly work. As soon as possible she was conveyed to her room, and medical aid summoned, with the hope that her life might yet be saved. For twelve hours the physician and loving friends watched by the bed of pain, but all efforts to save her life were unavailing. The vital spark grew fainter and fainter, and with the rising of the morning sun, the sainted soul of the young wife and mother passed to the mansions of the loving Redeemer, who healeth every wound and wipeth away every tear. Now that was Flossie Hall, my great-great-grandmother. And what's not stated in that newspaper clipping is that my great-grandmother, Zora, was in that house at the time, only ten months old, lying in her crib, oblivious to the event that tore her mother from her. And much later, I set that same event down in verse. The evening was chill when her child lay down, in a crib as tiny as ten months tall. And the house is silent, not a soul around, her only child only, lonely Zora Hall. And a breath as peaceful passed from her lips, in a white cloud she watched it go, as a happy angel on heaven's way skips on feet as light as a flake of snow. So the blankets pulled and bonnet put tight, and warmed by kiss her wan little cheek, she thought a fire would feel just right for angel Zora as angels meek. A kerosene can to the coals she brought, the coals as white as a winter's drift, and even as cold she carefree thought, as the oven door oped, the oil can tipped. Leapt the flame up, the lacy dress caught, a white flash fled afire, through the night a neighbor sought, too late, though the flame expired. In the silent night, its silence kept, as a cloud of white went heaven's way, the charred flakes as the child slept, went skipping light in skyward play. And still she sleeps, the silent child, though a long life had lone crib to pall. With mother sleeps and slumbers mild, her only child only, lonely Zora Hall. In memory of Zora Hall Detweiler, 1904-2006. So that is how our story begins, with loss. And that's going to be a repeating theme throughout our story today. But my family is not the kind to wallow in it. I mean, you would never know by talking to them that they'd ever suffered the slightest tragedy. It's really the amount of loss that shows how indomitable that they really are. And perhaps it's that endurance, that striving in spite of what life throws at you, that shows as much as anything what it means to make your mark. My great-grandmother Zora, who was named for a gypsy girl in a novel, by the way, grew up without a mother. And for much of her childhood, she was without a father, too, for Floyd Hall was nearly broken by the loss of his wife, Flossie. Emotionally shattered, he needed to get away from the place where that happened. 
and that's when he was invited by his own father to come up to Alaska. Now, the gold rush was booming in Nome, Alaska at that time, and the family thought a change of scenery and rest would do Floyd good. So little Zora was placed in the charge of a great uncle who had a daughter that she could play with, and then Floyd struck north. There, he managed to turn tragedy into gold, literally, and got his hands on a nugget as large as his fist, which he quickly sold in Seattle for fear of being robbed. He worked as a bookkeeper in Alaska for some six years. Meanwhile, Zora spent her early years barely knowing her father, though her impression of him was favorable because he would often send home gifts to her. She told me how proud she was of a certain mink, that kind of, you know, fur drape that you wear around your shoulders and neck that's made from a mink's fur. She got one of those from him, and that was something that none of the other little girls had. She was quite proud of that. When Zora grew up, she went to typing school, and she had a great interest in politics and presidents. She shook hands with every president in her lifetime except for two. I think that's what she told me. It might have not proved true towards the very end of her life when she was more housebound, but for many, many years, she was really interested in that. She was also a reader and a bit more of an intellectual type, like me, actually. But I was not as close to her as some of my cousins were, whom she often took care of in times of family strife. My cousin Russ told me that he and his brother Garrett were smoking weed in her basement one time when they heard her coming down the stairs, and they quickly hid their stuff. But she was like, I know what you're doing down there. That's that such and such. And then she named the exact variety that they were smoking. And Russ and his brother, they looked at each other in amazement, and they said, you're right. And then she went on to explain that one evening during the years of Prohibition, so that would be the 1920s in America, she was at a party, and in those days, it was the women's job to bring the booze because they could hide flasks in their garter belt and no man would dare search them there, so that was their job. But someone at the party told her that there were some black folks, and no doubt they used a less politically correct term in those days, but someone told her that there were some black folks in the alley out back that could give her something better than alcohol. <laughs> and that's how she came by the experience that let her identify the exact variety that my cousins were smoking. Now, if that story is true, it kind of means that she must have kept up the habit throughout her life in order to identify the exact variety like that. Now, that's not something that I ever suspected, nor did most of my relatives. But then again, you never know what people do behind closed doors. Now, I'm not sure that my father would much appreciate me including that episode in our family narrative here, but it's, uh, it's too good to pass up. And anyway, to me... It's significant because it shows another kind of adventure, an inward exploration of the senses and of the psyche that also runs in my family. And it's that kind of adventure that I personally identify with, with all my years of meditation and imagination and writing. Zora was more like that, an inward type, like me. She certainly made her mark with the care that she gave to my cousins, not just Russ and Garrett, but all of them who speak of her more fondly than any other family member on that side. But I have to wonder how much else went on in her mind, things that we would never know because they leave no trace. And that's how I often feel about my own life. I know I'm an adventurer, but what does it look like from the outside? Will anyone ever know the richness of what I experience on the inside? Perhaps Zora had more to say, I mean, much more, maybe. She felt her life would make a great movie, and she said as much in a newspaper interview, which, 
coincidentally, was written by my future father-in-law, Barry Westhoff. But see, she wasn't a writer. She wrote letters a lot, but she wasn't good at writing stories. And so whatever she experienced on the inside, that story goes untold, apart from, you know, the poor snippets passed on by my family and by myself in this episode, for example. In fact, as I record this episode, I'm actually sitting at Zora's solid walnut writing desk, which is more than 125 years old. It belonged to her great-uncle W.B. Crowley, who was the one who took her in. He had a milk and cream station, and this is where that sat. And before that, it came from a barn, so we don't even know how old it is. But here it is in front of me as I record this, and it stands as a physical marker and reminder of the life that she lived. And unlike these drawers that I can open up and look inside, I can't see inside her mind. I wonder, that, that kind of person that she was, what else do we not know about her? What other rich experiences and stories did she have to tell, but didn't know the words? Anyway, Zora married. She married a man named Lester Detweiler, who had his pilot's license, and he ended up giving my father his first airplane ride, and in just a minute you'll see why that's significant. But for now, I want to go on to Zora and Lester's daughter, my grandmother, Zoe. And yes, that's how she pronounces it. It's not Zoe, it's Zoe. She was also one touched by tragedy, which we'll also get to in just a second. But first, here's an excerpt from a letter written by Zora, recounting one morning with their little daughter Zoe. Zoe has been getting off some good ones lately. Sunday morning, Det and I weren't up, and she was running around amusing herself. She built an airplane out of chairs, and the broomstick was the stick. She had on sunglasses. She got in the plane and yelled, Goodbye, Ma and Pa! See you next week! and then made a noise like an airplane. After a while, she stopped and pulled up her glasses, looked all around, and remarked, This airplane hasn't moved a goddamned bit! <laughs> Detcher choked out a laugh on that one. Then he told me about how he and Zoe heard a man say, Gull darn, over the radio, and Zoe said, He means goddamn, doesn't he, Daddy? So much for attainment of our brilliant child. <laughs> That's my grandmother Zoe for you. <laughs> even even as a young child, that was her. She wasn't the intellectual like Zora. She was more the outward-looking type, like the rest of my dad's side. She had many accomplishments in her life, from mastery of the violin and the organ, to a lifetime of collecting antiques. So many, in fact, that the family had to start a museum, which now exists in her hometown of St. James. But from an early age, I think it did bother her a bit that she wasn't quite what she felt she was expected to be. Later, she even wrote as much in her recounting of her grandfather's tale, which she entitled The Saga of Alaska Floyd, which is one of the places that I know about the whole gold nugget story. She writes, Since I was his only grandchild, he was determined that I attend four years of college and have a career of some sort before I married. After one year of college, however, I knew I was not college material, and I opted to marry and start raising a family. That was a great disappointment to him, even more to him, I think, than anyone else in our family. Now that's another feeling that I think anyone can identify with on this Father's Day, that nagging worry that perhaps you may not measure up to the expectations of those that have gone before you, that maybe you won't make your mark. But see, everyone has to make their mark in their own way, otherwise your story is not truly yours. All right, so back to our story. Zoe dropped out of college and married. Now the man that she married brought a new episode of tragedy to the family. Bob Newberg, 
and this is where the Swedish part of the family comes from, the other part being Irish and English and German Swiss, came back from World War II a broken man. He was known for a furious temper. By the time I knew him, he had actually mellowed out some, so I didn't really experience this. I only remember him frightening me as a child by pulling out his glass eye and holding his hand up to me, or telling me that the scars in his leg were from a shark bite. But the true origin of those scars took more than a physical toll on my Grandpa Bob. It was the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium. And by this time, Bob and all the soldiers in his battalion had been harrowed for roughly six months, somehow surviving through the living nightmare that was war as an infantryman in the European theater. The bullets whizzing past your ears and mortar shells exploding all around for hours and even days on end. It's, it's enough to drive a man insane, and perhaps that's what it did to my grandpa. Because one day, when ordered to crawl across a road, my grandfather snapped. I mean, he basically just said, fuck it, enough of this creeping around in my belly, and he stood up, and he walked across that road. Well, a grenade went off, and the next thing that he knew, he was in a triage hospital. They told him he had been marked for dead and put in a room to die. But a nurse walking by happened to notice a toe wiggle, and that is the only reason why he was still alive. Bob was given an honorable discharge and a purple heart. For people outside the United States, that's the award you get if you're wounded. And Bob returned to the United States to find his first wife had run off, and he couldn't find her anywhere. And that's when he met my grandmother, Zoe. And he must have looked handsome in his uniform, and as a wounded war veteran, I'm sure there must have been an aura about him, to be sure. So they married, and they moved out to Bob's farm, but it was not to be a happy life together. Much later, Zoe would tell me of the bitter fights that they had. Bob once even went so far as to threaten her. He said, do you know how easy it would be to make your death look like an accident? I could take the bobcat, which is a farm implement, and I could pin you up against the house, and no one would be the wiser. Well, hearing that, Zoe shot back at him, and she said, Well, do you know how easy it would be for me to smother you in your sleep? And the next morning, Bob didn't come out for breakfast, and she found that he had moved his dresser up against the door to block anyone sneaking in in the night. <laughs> I, I guess they must have slept in different rooms at the time. Not surprising, given their relationship, I guess. But think about the experience that he went through. I mean, what does that do to a man? What could make him that mean? My father speculates that it may have been brain damage from his injuries. Because in addition to the shrapnel that gave his leg the shark bite, quote-unquote, and also took out one of his eyes, Bob took a spike to the head. Right through the brain it went. And when my father learned of other brain damage victims, like the famous Phineas Gage, for example, who suffered permanent changes of personality as a result of the injury, he was convinced that Bob had suffered the same thing. He was a broken man. I don't know. Maybe that's the explanation. Maybe it's not. But nevertheless, that's not the end of Bob's story, because there was more to him. He was also a very successful farmer, and in a strange way, a good father. Well, I don't know if a good father is the right way to say it. He definitely instilled something in his children, including my dad. He had a fierceness that made his children, including my father, grow up tough. And that, if anything, is what he passed on. That's how he made his mark. And also in his later age, Bob's temper seemed to mellow. 
it was almost as if, if my dad is correct, that brain damage was behind it, that his brain somehow managed to compensate and use other parts of it that were intact to bring him back into the world of the socially acceptable human being. <laughs> and it was in those years that he once told my dad, after decades of not talking about the war at all, he told my dad of an experience he had in the trenches. At the time, no one was firing, but the enemy, the Germans, was just over the next trench, and there was one German over there who was standing up and who was taunting the Allied soldiers. And he was shouting cuss words at them and calling them names and saying, we're going to, you know, the whole nine yards. And seeing that, my grandfather, Bob, he just decided that he had had enough. And he cocked his rifle, and he took aim, and he shot him. And the German fell down, dead, shot in the head. When Bob told my dad about that, decades later, in the advanced years of his life, he said, no one else was shooting. I did that. I'm going to have to pay for that after I die. He had remorse for the way he had lived his life. He knew the things that he had done. And so to me, his story is a little bit of the anti-hero that at the end of the movie kind of has a redeeming quality about him. And it was a good thing, too, because my dad had had a complicated relationship with him, I tell you. And it wasn't until after that incident where the two of them were on that fishing trip and got into that bottle of Jack Daniels where they were even able to begin to come to some kind of rapprochement between them. My father regrets that, that he had so little time to get to know his father for real before he passed away. So I think my dad didn't want to let that situation happen between him and I. Maybe that's one reason why he did sit me down that one day and try to have that talk. So now I want to talk about my dad, Ed. My father, Ed, was one of his children. And his story, too, is in part about pain. My father suffered a debilitating illness in high school. Doctors didn't know what was wrong with him. Eventually, they settled on a diagnosis. They called it spondylitis, which is a kind of swelling of the vertebrae in your spine. But my father suspects it may have been some kind of spinal meningitis. In any case, what happened was the cartilage between his vertebrae swelled up so large that his spine became too long for his body, causing his spine to arch and jut out like an inchworm in mid-crawl, and his physician said that he may never walk again. Eventually the swelling did go down, but in doing so, three of his vertebrae fused together. Now imagine that for a second. These bones that are supposed to be floating freely are now locked to each other, kind of like wearing a permanent cast over part of your finger so that you can't flex that part of your finger, and the rest of your finger has to work extra hard to bend it all, right? So imagine what that would feel like. Basically, my dad's life after that involved constant daily pain. And now, I'm sure everyone here has experienced headaches, back pain, maybe even migraines, things like that. And you know how testy and irritable you can get when you're in prolonged pain like that, right? I mean, my dad could easily have turned into his father. But it's a testament to my dad that he didn't turn out as badly tempered as his father had been. Rather, he went on to lead quite an ambitious life. And in fact, that's the theme of my father's life. Endurance through pain and achievement in spite of pain. You see, he had a dream. 
Ever since the day he took that first ride in Zora's husband's small airplane, my dad wanted to live in the sky. He worked mad hours after school and high school in order to scrape together somehow enough cash for flight lessons, which are not cheap, but pretty soon he was able to afford it and he got his pilot's license. And ever after, he lived, ate, and breathed flying. And to his great annoyance, a local newspaper man actually gave him the nickname Tailspin Eddie, apparently because he came out of an aerobatic stunt quite low to the ground. Now, my dad denies that it was really that dangerous and all of that, but then again, this is also coming from a guy that went skydiving on his own after only one lesson, even to the extent of packing his own chute. That's my dad for you. That's an adventurer for you. <laughs> that's Ed. But my father is far more than just a daredevil. In fact, that's just a very small part of his life. In fact, when I think of my father, I don't really think of daredevil. I think, despite whatever other complicated feelings we might have between each other, I mean, what son doesn't have a complicated relationship with his father, right? <laughs> but, but despite any of that, what I think of, the overriding feeling that I have toward my father, is pride. Because he is one of those rare people who actually takes the time to master a craft. My father is not just a pilot, he's an artist. See, Ed became a crop duster. You know, that's the kind of pilot that applies pesticides to fields by air. And normally, the way that you do that is you swoop down into the field, make a pass, and then you pull up and make a button hook turn over an adjacent field and come back for another pass. But my father perfected a technique where once he sprayed out at least half of his load and his plane is light and nimble enough to do this, he performs quite differently. He makes his pass and then pulls the stick back hard so that his plane shoots up straight into the air, almost to the point of stalling. And stalling is what it's called when the plane literally stops flying and begins to fall. And just at that point, my father kicks hard on the rudder, turns the plane around at the point of near zero gravity just before the fall, and then, with the nose of his plane now pointed downward, swoops down for another pass. And this is an aerobatic stunt called a hammerhead, and it's normally reserved for air shows and other forms of entertainment flying, but he uses it every day at altitudes of little more than 100 feet off the ground, and it eliminates a vast amount of time and fuel wasted on all those long button-hook turns that other crop dusters do. And once, when he explained this maneuver to a fellow crop duster at a crop duster's convention, the other guy waved his hand and said, You're full of shit! And he walked away. <laughs> Even his fellow crop dusters don't believe what he can do. And that's my dad for you. He is a master of his craft. And all of this is in spite of a life of constant pain. Now, as I was writing this up, I, I, I literally had tears in my eyes. I, I really don't know if my father believes me when I say how proud I am of him, but I am. He showed me what it means to make your mark. I mean, you don't have to be world famous. You don't have to have your name in the history books, but you have to be worthy of being remembered. And I hope that I can live up to that someday. Oh, and here's another thing. Guess what? He's, uh, he's not just a pilot, but he's also a brilliant singer-songwriter, too. <laughs> and uh, this is actually another story of his 
indomitability. You see, he always suffered from extreme stage fright. In school, whenever he had to get up in front of the class and give a report or something, he would get so sick that he would throw up sometimes. And when he did finally get up in front of everybody, sometimes his field of vision would narrow to just a point in front of him. I mean, public performances actually gave him tunnel vision. And yet, he had near-perfect pitch, and in his later adult life, he picked up the guitar, and he got into music, and he started songwriting. And now, he performs at churches, at bars, and at nearly every family gathering, or wedding, or funeral. Here is a sample of some of his work. Hold my heart deep inside yours This bond we have, it shall endure A bed of roses awaits the spring Embrace the warmth this new day brings And I'll be there right by your side We'll say goodbye to all the tears we've cried For things we've said and things we've done It's always darkest Just before the dawn That's from an original song written and performed by my dad, Ed Newberg. And every time that he sings, it is a testament to how much that he's overcome in his life. Now, as for me, I, I don't have nearly as much to overcome. I haven't suffered any terrible tragedies, at least not like other people in my family, not like my cousins, uh, Dana and Ross and Ray, whose tale is perhaps the most sordid of all that I have to tell today. My father's brother, so that would be my uncle, Kurt, married his first wife, Cindy, when he was still in high school. and He loved her quite dearly. But being young and prone to mistakes, things didn't go altogether swimmingly. And at one point, after they had two children together, that'd be Dana and Ross, my Uncle Kurt caught his wife cheating on him. And it was an awful affair, obviously. But he loved her enough that he was willing to take her back. But she didn't want to. She ran off with the other guy. And they had a child together that they named Ray. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't long before she realized that this other guy was actually nothing like she'd expected. And in fact, it proved to be her end. I was in elementary school at the time, as were my cousins, and I remember coming home, getting off the school bus and walking up our long driveway, when my cousin Dana met me on our push scooter. And I wondered why she hadn't been similarly in school that day, what she was doing at my place. And then she said, quite matter-of-factly, Mommy got shot today! It happened like this. Cindy had given up on this other guy, and she had gone back to my Uncle Kurt, taking with her her new child, Ray, who was only a few years old at that point. Now this drove the other guy, whose name was Dan, into a rage, and he demanded his son back, and when she refused, he drove out to Kurt's farmstead where she was staying, and a heated argument ensued. Now my cousin Ross was at home at the time, and hearing the argument, he locked himself in the bathroom, and it was inside that bathroom behind the flimsy lock on that door, that he heard gunshots ring out. And when he emerged, his mother was lying dead on the floor, and his baby half-brother Ray 
was gone, taken by the man who had pulled the trigger. Now later Dan was caught and convicted of murder, and Ray was returned to the family, and he was adopted by my Uncle Kurt as his own child. But the entire affair sent shockwaves through the family that, for some, never quite healed. I mean, what does that do to a person, to have your mother murdered? Especially to have to listen to that, a mere bathroom door between you and that. Amazingly, Ross, who was in the bathroom, went on to lead a well-adjusted life, as did Ray. Dana, on the other hand, well, she never quite healed. She lived a life that seemed always on the wrong side of the tracks, always falling in with the wrong crowd, and in 2009, it finally caught up with her. The official story from the police is that she took her own life, though the circumstances are suspicious enough that Kurt and my other relatives suspect foul play. She may have been murdered, just like her mother. Unfortunately, we, we just don't know. What is certain, though, is that she left behind her, among others, a newborn baby girl whom she had named for that fond caregiver that had helped her and others through so much, my great-grandmother, our great-grandmother, Zora. And just like her namesake, that little baby, Zora, lost her mother before she had even left the crib. Now I am fortunate that I never had to go through anything like that. My father had managed to rise above the patterns of rage and depression and tragedy that had long plagued so many different members of my family. And I grew up not ignorant of it all, but blissfully distant from it. I mean, I can't say that my childhood was a happy one. I mean, being a short boy and quiet and not exactly socially adept, I didn't really have the easiest time in school. But at least I didn't have to live through any of that. You know? So that concludes the stories of my father's side of the family that I want to share today. It's a family that's been struck by loss and tragedy and just one thing after another, sometimes it seems. And yet, to talk to them on any given day, I mean, they, they just seem jovial and carefree. And maybe really that's their ultimate triumph, that they can go through all of that without being destroyed by it. I don't know. But before we go today, I do want to say a few words about myself and what I have gained from my father's side. I'm really the odd man out at first glance when it comes to my father's side of the family. I mean, I'm brainy and sensitive and not action-oriented at all, really. And unlike much of my dad's side, I'm not into motorcycles or tractors or guitars or guns or fishing or hunting. I don't have much to say at family gatherings because I can't easily relate to those kinds of interests, but I can relate when it comes to the spirit of adventure. It's just that it's a different kind of adventure for me. As a child, I inherited the artistic talents of my mother, and I guess you could say the latent ones of my father. He hadn't taken up songwriting yet at the time, and perhaps through him you could say of my grandmother Zoe. She was also musical. So I was artistic, and and what I liked about drawing at that early age was imagining up another world and then peopling it on the page. And that's a kind of inner exploration, you know, an inner adventure. And you can see that in my portrait drawings that I do for people today. I also seemed predisposed from a young age 
to think about other people's perspectives. And one time, so my mother tells me, when I was quite young, my mother lost me, and she nearly tore her hair out trying to find me, when she happened, by chance, to see out of the kitchen window, off in the distance, across the grass runway, because we lived on a small-town airport. <laughs> and what could be more appropriate than that for my father's family than a house on an airport? <laughs> anyway, across the grass runway, my mother, by chance, just happened to catch sight of a little head bobbed down behind a ditch. And that was me. You see, apparently, I had seen a tractor stopped over there somewhere, and I had imagined up a farmer who owned that tractor who had gotten stuck and who desperately needed my help. In actual fact, the real owner of the tractor had probably just gone to lunch or something, but my imagined version of him was much better. <laughs> it certainly made for a better story, probably, at least in the little boy's mind. So that was me, always thinking about other people thinking. And that has made for a rich life, I feel. But see, you can't see that from the outside looking in. And that's why I might seem, and many of you listening might feel this way too, you might be able to relate to this, no doubt we have more than a few introverts out there listening to this podcast. That's why I might seem dull and unremarkable sometimes if you meet me in person. I mean, I'm not flashy. I'm not the action hero. My brothers are more like that, like the action people. Tailors into metalsmithing and guns and Dustin's into motorcycles and more recently into flying even. And I'm sure that my father would have been thrilled if I had gotten into flying like that too, but you see, that stuff just wasn't for me. Flying wasn't for me. And anyway, like I said, if you're going to make your mark, you have to do it in your own way. And I think my dad knew from an early age, really, that I was on my own path. And that path took me to England, and then Malaysia, and then Japan, and Korea. From study abroad to teaching English, I found every reason to travel. And I immersed myself in new environments and unfamiliar cultures. I mean, the same thing might terrify other people. I mean, especially a place like Japan, where you can't even read the street signs, and they don't speak English. Not very well, at least. <laughs> That's why I was there. I mean, none of my cousins or family members on my dad's side have traveled much at all outside the U.S., if at all. But me, I loved it. I lived five years in Japan, and I relished every minute of it. And I loved it for the same reason that I love doing dead ideas, because my adventure is exploring the perspectives of other people, seeing from their eyes, from their points of view. The more different and the more alien, the better. Now, as I said, I'm more of the inward adventurer. I'm more like Zora. I'm the intellectual type, whose daredevil stunts play out on the innerscapes of my mind. For example, I've done extended stays at Buddhist monasteries in Asia, even doing 10 days of complete silence in a Thai monastery once. And let me tell you, when your mouth is silent, the thoughts in your head become so loud. <laughs> and even the sensations of vision and hearing become vivid beyond compare. I feel like I've been to the ends of the earth and back, not just geographically, but also in my own mind. And that sense of exploration and mastery, I get that from my dad. I mean, that's the spirit of flying. That It's that sense of seeing what's out there, seeing what's up in the clouds, seeing what you can find, how far you can push your skill and hone your skill. That's that adventuresome spirit that infuses my whole family on my dad's side, despite the pain. 
and despite the tragedy and the loss. And that's what my dad wanted to impress upon me that day when he uncharacteristically invited me to the bar for a drink together, and when he tried to recreate the experience that he had had with his father, Bob. And his eyes watered up just a bit, and he said, you have to make your mark. We're not that different in the end, my father and I. For although he may not be the intellectual like me, who can say what he experiences up there among the clouds? I mean, it's those things that have no words, that cannot be described, but only felt, that fail to make it into the family stories, and soon are lost to the winds of time, because they have no way to impress themselves upon future generations other than through the imaginations of those who ask, what was that like for them? Well, that's our episode for today. I hope that this episode has perhaps given listeners some inspiration to help you wonder about maybe your own father or your family and ask, what was that like for them? And I hope that the whole Dead Ideas podcast has likewise been inspiring in that regard. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's about asking of other times and of other cultures, what was that like? Well, if you want to write to me about your experiences, please do. You can find me on social media at, at Dead Ideas Pod. Or you can write to me by email at deadideaspod at gmail.com. And if any of my family members are listening, I'm sure I got some details wrong today, so let me know that too. If any of you out there like what we're doing on this show, you can support us on Patreon. And remember right now, if you're among the first 20 to review us on Stitcher, I will draw you, or a family member, in a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I'll draw you as an Alaska gold rush man finding a nugget the size of your fist, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. You can see lots of examples of that on our supporters page of our website at www.deadideas.net. That's it for our show today. We'll be back next week for more Viking Berserkers. Happy Father's Day, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. This is a song I wrote... Uh... While I was ferrying an ag plane out to California, I got stuck in a town called Wendover. Got a letter from Salt Lake City From a dark-haired girl so pretty She's been spinning through my memory for so long Her life seemed so uncertain As she wrote her heart's been hurting For the man she dearly loves is up and gone but I'm here in Minnesota Trying to make my quota Flying over sugar beets every day And with a thousand miles between us Doesn't take a genius to know That there's no time for me to get away How the Rocky Mountains are calling me today How I wish that I could bank these wings And head that way if only I could hold her, lay her head back on my shoulders I could help her wipe those painful tears away At the airport in Wendover In the windy late October Mother Nature and her mountains kept me there So 
We had lunch and laughed a bunch And somewhere in the evening I fell for the girl with the soft dark hair How the Rocky Mountains are calling me today How I wish that I could bank these wings and head that way If only I could hold her, lay her head back on my shoulder I could help her wipe those painful tears away Sitting on my back porch, night air blowing cool Feet up on a cooler, sipping on a brew Another night like the last one and I'm sure tomorrow too I'm missing you, missing you, missing you I don't think that I can take this, these days are dragging on The nights are turning endless and my heart just won't beat calm Missing you, missing you, missing you Missing you, missing you, I'm missing you Sitting on my back porch, trying to get by Counting all the stars that are lighting up the sky Then another westbound jet repeats a mournful cry Missing you, missing you, missing you If only she could be here Sugar beets would seem much sweeter And the sun would feel much warmer than today Cause I'm stuck in Minnesota Trying to make my quota And it looks like this cold summer's here to stay how the Rocky Mountains are calling me today How I wish that I could bank these wings and head that way If only I could hold her, lay her head back on my shoulder I could help her wipe those painful tears away Oh, if only I could hold her, lay her head back on my shoulder I could help her wipe those painful tears away At the airport in Wendover Windy late October I hope that dark-haired girl Will wait for me